All right, let's pray, shall we, as we start. Well, Father, we uh, call upon you to make plain your word to us this evening. As we take these uh, words spoken all those centuries ago, help us not only understand them, but see uh, what lessons you have for us in the world in which we live. Uh, perhaps more than anything, we recognise that we need to learn to lament and we want to pray that you would teach us how to do that in a way which is right before you, which both mourns the suffering in this world and the judgment to come, but also celebrates your goodness here and your goodness in salvation which lies ahead. Uh, do all this that we might become the church you want us to be, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, you've got a Bible. It always helps. I find it helpful to orientate myself a little. I'm presuming it helps you guys too. Uh, As we look through the book of Jeremiah, we're not always looking for a, a change in the kind of the format of the text. Jeremiah switches from... Uh, kind of talky bits to prayer or song, but keeps the theme going. And so often we're looking for kind of markers to show us where the literary units lie. Uh, It may be that this section, which starts at chapter 14 and verse 1, goes all the way to the end of uh, uh, chapter 16. Uh, You'll see that 17 verse 5 begins with that phrase that we've come to see is quite a helpful marker, uh, 17 verse 5, this is what the Lord says and then starts again. It may be that that there is the, the handover from one section to, a neck, to the next. It's not always easy because as we've reflected on before, uh, uh, the, this is uh, uh, the kind of the edited works of Jeremiah over decades of ministry. And so we're, we're kind of looking for themes to see when they change, and we're looking for those literary markers to help us to see what, what the units are. Let's presume for a moment, and we can explore it more later, but let's presume for a moment that the, the section ends 17 verse 5. That's actually a huge chunk, way too much uh, to cover in one evening. So we're going to do it over two. That's the plan. This evening then, 14 to 15 verse 9. There's a slight change in topic from verse 10. So we'll look at verse 10 and and chapter 16 uh, next week. That's the plan. Look, that may have made things worse, not better. I hope not. Uh, Let's just acknowledge that even actually just reading 14 and 15 isn't the most straightforward. One, One of the things that's tricky to follow is the change of voice. That is, who is it? Who is it that's speaking as we... Uh, read each section sometimes Jeremiah sometimes it's the Lord sometimes the Lord gives Jeremiah words to speak on his behalf which adds another layer of complexity well as we do on a Sunday evening we'll go a bit slower and we'll kind of work through that I think you'll see that as long as we go slow it's fairly straightforward what's more important therefore is once we get past these structural things is to work out what's actually being said and why And what we're going to see is actually these uh, chapters, these verses that we're looking at this evening are particularly personal. I've called this, there we go, the heart displayed. Um, If we're getting in the feel for Jeremiah week by week, 
I guess we're coming to expect him. He's a man who wears his heart on his sleeve. We know how he's feeling most of the time. Actually, as we listen to him in prayer with the Lord and hear the Lord's answer, we're going to see the Lord's heart as well. And as we watch the interplay between the two, I think part of the way the text is written is it makes us examine our own hearts. Uh, We'll see how that goes. The scene for this interplay between Jeremiah and the Lord, this this prayer and response, which is really what this passage is all about. The scene is set right there at the beginning of uh, chapter 14. And we're taken from the realm of the frivolous right into the realm of the serious. Uh, Verse 1, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. What about, well, verse 1, concerning the drought. Judah's droughts is where we begin. It's a helpful backdrop, because a drought is never just a drought in the land of Canaan, is it? There's always more going on. Actually, let me just mention that even as we dive in, verse 1, drought, in the Hebrew it's plural, droughts, plural. I, I don't really know why the NIV changed it to a singular. I could never get to the bottom of that, perhaps you'll... Uh, find something if you're reading around Jeremiah. Nevertheless, this interplay between Jeremiah and the Lord takes place during this time of crisis, probably crises, a number of things going on, whether it's a series of droughts or a number of things related, uh, uh, kind of uh, events are taking place or about to take place which are deeply concerning, catastrophic. Whether the droughts have begun already or whether this is a kind of prophetic past tense of future events, that is, Jeremiah is speaking, uh, knowing these things are coming, but speaking of them as if they've almost come already, is a bit tricky to know. That said, there are lots of things we can know, so we ought to focus on those. Uh, This drought, these crises that have come, will we'll, we'll create a, a terrible plight for, for humanity gathered in the land of Canaan. Uh, nobles, as well as servants, verse 3, are going to be without water. Uh, farmers will be dismayed. I suspect that's uh, uh, watering it down for, for us. Goodness uh, knows how we might really describe the anxiety they'll experience. Verse 6, even the wild animals of the field will pant for water as the grass in the valleys uh, withers. Verse 6, their eyes fail for, for a lack of food. Well, here is this judgment coming, I think, which Jeremiah has been preaching about all these years. Uh, and knowing it's coming, or perhaps it's already started to come, and maybe that's what's triggered all of this. Either way, uh, Jeremiah turns... Uh, to the Lord in prayer. That's the first kind of block of dialogue we get, verses uh, 7 to 9. You can see there are uh, speech marks around verses 2 to verse 6. This is the word of the Lord that was given to Jeremiah. But now from verse 7, do you see no speech marks? Now it's Jeremiah speaking, and he's speaking to the Lord his God in prayer. That's good. We come to Jeremiah then, finding him on his knees, in prayer for the people. Uh, Some people see Jeremiah as speaking on behalf of the people in the sense that he's putting into words their corporate repentance. Uh, 
And that's really what this first prayer is about. I don't think that's what's going on. I'm not persuaded. We never really see the people being particularly repentant. I think that actually Jeremiah is praying for the people in intercession as one of them. I I understand it in those terms because uh, this little prayer, 7, 8 and 9, is so wonderful. And I guess we've come to expect this kind of fairly robust, mature spirituality from Jeremiah, but certainly not from Judah. I don't think he's praying words that all the people feel in their heart. I think he's simply intercessing for them. But he identifies himself as one of the people. He's aligned with them and praying for them. Uh, Verse 7, we have often rebelled. Uh, We have sinned against you. Verse 7 again, our sins testify against us. There's a unity, a a oneness as Jeremiah prays. Even before we go further into the prayer, that's worth note, isn't it? This is the people of Judah. And we know, don't we, they've barely accepted a single word that Jeremiah has preached. And yet still he won't. He won't withdraw from their number. He won't distance himself from them. He won't hold the ancient church at arm's length. He may be at odds with the vast majority of his compatriots. But but still he's resolute that he stands with them. He may not like them or be able to commend them, but he does stand together with them. I think it's remarkable. I really think that's worth noting. Of of almost anyone in the Bible, you could almost forgive uh, Jeremiah a little bit of self-righteousness. Woe is me. I've done really well here. But uh, but Judah are awful. But, well, no, he he wants to pray uh, in terms of we are one. It's good... I think for us to learn about the corporateness of church life, that togetherness, that oneness, even if we feel slightly separate on some things, nevertheless we are together and as one. Jeremiah made sure that's where his heart was orientated. Two uh, things beyond that stand out about the prayer. Firstly, he is so clear in his mind and in his words that he has no right to ask the Lord to intervene on the basis of the goodness of the people. Uh, Verse 7 again. Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. We've often rebelled. We have sinned against you. And so, can you see, his prayer is, is wonderfully right theologically in that sense because he begins with a despite not a act because we are a great people, but do this despite who we are and how we've behaved. Despite our fallenness, still act, Lord. That's a good perspective in prayer, isn't it, I think? A prayer of the humble man or woman, the contrite in heart, act despite me, not because of me. Uh, Second thing about the prayer, Jeremiah's plea for rescue then from these droughts and the other crises that are taking place is to appeal to the Lord's own character, the Lord's own name. Uh, Verse 7, for the sake of your name, do something, Lord. 
Uh, verse 8, you who are the hope of Israel, it's savour in times of distress. You're the one we go to. It's not Jeremiah's goodness, it's certainly not Jeremiah's character that he appeals to in his prayer, but the Lord's and the Lord's character, because of your name, your fame, your reputation and your character, please would you act, despite us. He wants the Lord to come and intervene, verse 8, don't be like a a stranger or a travelling or just passing through. Don't be inactive like a soldier, verse 9, caught off guard. Instead, this plea, we bear your name, verse 9, do not forsake us. It seems so obvious, but it's worth highlighting that Jeremiah is clear in his own mind that the only hope for the ancient church facing God's disciplining hand is the Lord himself. He is the Lord, the judge, moved to act. But he is not only the judge, he is, uh, verse 8, he is their only hope at salvation. He alone is the hope of Israel and the saviour, verse 8, in times of distress. Helpful as we think of the gospel, isn't it? We're saved from God's judgment by God's saviour for God's glory. We sometimes get that wrong, I think, in terms of what we're saved from. Certainly, we're saved from God, by God, for God. That's the gospel. That's how Jeremiah understands it. That's how we must understand the cross. We might say as Christians, this side of the cross, we can be even clearer, knowing that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is appointed to carry out the Father's judgment on the earth. We could say we're saved from Christ's judgment by Christ's cross. For the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom and his glory. That's the nature of salvation. That's the gospel. Let's move on. Uh, we've seen the, uh, the terrible things happening in Judah or about to happen. Jeremiah calls out in prayer to the Lord. The Lord uh, answers at, uh, 14 verse 10 to 16. Uh, having uh, held up Jeremiah in prayer as an example for us to learn from, it's, uh, you'd have to be a, a, with a heart of stone not to be saddened by what we find. The Lord's response is not what we as readers want. It's certainly not what Jeremiah would have hoped for. It's a reminder, perhaps, that we must never lose sight of the sovereignty of God in, in, in our prayers. We might pray prayers filled with scripture, with love in our hearts for our neighbours, our friends, but we always must pray with Jesus' words, yet not my will but yours be done. Even the Son submits to the Father in all things. How much more must we pray in that way for the church? Uh, The Lord sees the heart of his people. That's his first part of his answer to Jeremiah. He knows they don't love him. And instead, spiritually speaking, uh, verse 10, they greatly love to wander. We can't throw stones, can we, when we read such a phrase? You know, that hymn, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. What what hymn is that? Come now, Fran, well done, Jonathan. Great words. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet, verse 10. 
that's the consistent doctrine of humanity, isn't it? That we that we find in the Bible, who we are and what we do always begins in the heart with love and worship. If you want to change somebody, change what they worship and love first. But these people haven't changed. Their heart is filled with a love of wandering away from the Lord. It is their deliberate, willful, heartfelt idolatry that the Lord comes back at Jeremiah with. They do not restrain their feet. They wander to the gods of other nations. So now, now I will remember the wickedness, verse 10. I will punish uh, this people, he says. I will remember their wickedness. I, I take it, remember, I, I can't remember. I think I've talked to someone about this as we've looked at Jeremiah in one of the previous evenings. Uh, uh, remember doesn't imply a forgetfulness as we might understand it it's more a a, a kind of a, a patience and a reticence before to act but now is the time to act that's what the remembering is it's almost as if the Lord has stored up a knowledge of their wickedness but refrained from acting but now he will remember meaning now he will act to discipline and judge and since now is the time for, for disciplining uh, and judging, now cannot be the time for prayer, verse 11, or for fasting, verse 12. That's come and gone. Now is the time for divine action, for divine discipline. Because, verse 12, a sword, famine, and plague are coming. It's not what we wanted to hear. It's not what Jeremiah hoped for. He makes this secondary little case for the people, verse uh, 13. It's just a, a, a little verse, just a single verse. The people aren't ready for this, he says. They've been duped into thinking that just cursory fasting and offerings uh, 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 have been enough to placate you and bring us peace. That's what the, the other prophets have been saying, Jeremiah says, verse 13. But the Lord won't be moved. He says what Jeremiah knows already, verse 14, those other prophets speak lies. You get this repetition, verse 14, I've not sent them. Again, verse 15, I did not send them. Their origins don't lie in the Lord God. In fact, verse 15, these false prophets will perish in the judgment by sword and famine themselves, just as the people who listen to them will endure Verse 16, the calamity they deserve. It's quite hard to know. It's, uh, why does God allow false prophets, false teachers to plague the church? In the Old Testament and the New, it's a problem in every age, isn't it? I don't have an easy question as to why. Why would he allow people who are seeking his word to be so misled? I don't know. I don't know. I should weep. I should mourn that that's the case, should pray that people would come to the senses, come back to the true uh, God and his word. Perhaps more than anything, as we read about the influence of these false prophets, it ought to underline that, that standard that we're to test even the most celebrated preachers and prophets by, the, the word itself. I'm reminded of that moment in Acts 17 where... Uh, in a way that would be really offensive today, I just wouldn't do it. But Luke 
do you remember, d- uh, d- c- compares and contrasts people from one city with another. Today we'd say that was awful stereotyping, but uh, not for Luke. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Which is really a most remarkable passage, isn't it? Here's the Apostle Paul himself teaching, and they're not criticised for doubting that what he says is true. They're praised for testing even the Apostle Paul according to the Scriptures. Well, if only the people of Jeremiah's day would have done the same. If only they would have seen the difference between the false prophets who were just telling them what they wanted to hear and Jeremiah who alone, it seems, spoke the truth. But they wouldn't. They allowed themselves, in that sense, to be taken by these false prophets. And so it serves as no excuse for them. Verse 16, the people they're prophesying to, the recipients, will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the sword and famine. Their judgment will fall on the false prophets and those who embrace them alike. All of which brings us to this uh, issue of uh, lament, of lamentation, which is so important because actually quite a a good portion of the Bible is lament. It's an expression of sorrow. And because it's there, I defend the use of my picture of Jeremiah used in our notices. He is fed up. That's a, a good picture by, I can't remember the classic artist, but anyway. He does lament. He weeps. And so uh, verses 17 and 18, we get this God-given lament. Jeremiah has made these pleas on behalf of the people. The Lord has answered no. Now is the time for judgment. And now the Lord God draws near to the prophet. And can you see, uh, we're in speech marks again, aren't we? Uh, Verse 17 and 18. These are words that the Lord himself has penned. And given to Jeremiah. It's the Lord who has written this song of sadness for him to sing among the people. That does create a a slight complexity. That is, uh, it's fair to ask the question, who is speaking here? Whose words are these? Uh, So it's right to say on the one hand that it's the Lord who has penned this dirge, this lament. And, it, and it's Jeremiah who must preach it, who must sing this to the people. But is the voice the Lord's or is it Jeremiah's? Uh, verse 17, whose eyes are overflowing with tears? Well, the reality is it's not altogether clear and not all commentaries agree, which has made my work uh, this week particularly tricky. I think... It's more easily read as being the voice of the Lord himself. It seems to me that's what makes sense of this this metaphor that's new in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, We've seen lots of spiritual adultery and therefore the Lord and his people, his bride. Verse 17, that's been switched now to a father and child relationship, a father and daughter The Lord's people are the Lord's virgin daughter, uh, verse 17, my people. 
I think this is the Lord who is weeping over the fate of people, though he himself knows that he must judge and discipline them. And he uses this phrase, this image of a virgin daughter, to highlight the the disgrace of their spiritual waywardness, no longer kept pure, but have given themselves to the gods of other nations. For them and for their sin, I think here it's the Lord himself who weeps, though I can't imagine Jeremiah was smiling as he sang this song. In city, in country, verse 18, because even the spiritual leaders themselves will be lost, verse 18. Uh, Verse 19, the voice has changed again, hasn't it? No longer those uh, speech marks. Uh, Now Jeremiah is coming to prayer again. Uh, He's on his knees again before the Lord, his God, in prayer again. He's heard the Lord's plans in coming judgment. He's sung the Lord's lament over Jerusalem. Yet still, he, he won't give up petitioning the Lord on behalf of the people. Uh, again, as before, this is Jeremiah's prayer for the people, not their prayer prayed through Jeremiah, I think. This is his repentance, but it's not shared by the people he's praying for, though he wishes it were. Uh, verse 19, Jeremiah acknowledges the horrors that the people will face. Why have you so afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hoped for peace, but no good has come for a time of healing. But only this terror, that's not a soft word, that's a strong word, isn't it? These are people who are suffering. But he knows in this that God is uh, right and just. These horrors, verse 20, are the rightful disciplining hand of the Lord. God is just in judgment, verse 20. We have indeed sinned against you. And so Jeremiah's plea as uh, before is that God will act for the sake of his name. What else can he plea? Act in accordance with your gracious character, Lord. Remember, and that word remember means kind of act. Verse 21, remember now, do something about it, your covenant with us. There's the plea. Again, as before, the Lord God, verse 22, is the, is the only hope that, that, that Judah have. Verse 22 again, Baal, the Ashtoreths, they can't actually give water to end the drought. Only the Lord our God can provide water and save them, verse 22. Well, Jeremiah has prayed twice. We would expect then the Lord to answer twice, and that's what we get. Uh, Start of chapter 15, the second prayer deserves a second response. And now we hear the Lord speak from the heavens to Jeremiah, and and the Lord remains unchanged. The time for penitence is over. The time for terrible judgment has come. It's hard to read, but it's good to be reminded. History is working towards a moment, isn't it? It's not just going on and on endlessly in a circular fashion. There's a, a linear nature to history, we know that. It's working towards a day when all the world will be held to account. We might plea for God's patience. 
almost plea, I guess, that Jesus Christ wouldn't return yet. Not, not today, not tomorrow. Give my loved ones time to repent of their sins. The Apostle Peter teaches that Christ is not slow in coming. He is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That doesn't mean, though, that the day of judgment will never come, does it? The final day is appointed, we're told in Scripture. And Jeremiah faces this, well, if I can put it like this, this final, this small dry run, this little day of judgment, I guess, makes us think of the great final day of judgment. That, that Jeremiah is desperate that the Lord delay, delay, save the people. The Lord God responds to Jeremiah by mentioning by name those who have in the past stood and prayed on behalf of the people. And God has stayed his hand at verse 1. Moses and Samuel of the obvious figures in the Old Testament who prayed and God delayed. But not this time, verse 1. Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand, my heart would not go out to this people, he says. Now, Now is the time for judgment. Uh, If they ask, where shall we go? Tell them, verse 2, this is what the Lord says. Those destined for death to death. Those for the sword to the sword. Those for starvation to starvation. Those for captivity to captivity. Uh, Up until this point, we've been talking primarily about drought, haven't we? But here's the first time captivity has been mentioned in this little section. Uh, uh, verse 3 I will send four kinds of destroyers I take it those are the three we've already heard about sword, famine and plague added to this final one now exile or captivity those are the four it's important to note that because um, next week or the week after we'll look at the return from exile so it's important that the, the subject of exile is brought up here Uh, Verse 4, why will God bring these things upon them? Well, it's the sin of apostasy, of turning away, of idolatry, summed up in the wickedness of all the kings he might have chosen, Manasseh, king of Judah. Manasseh's the archetype for sin. It's his legacy which is still seen in the people of Jeremiah's day, the Lord says. The people are in a rut. They have not, they cannot get out. They cannot change their own hearts. Judgment will come. And by now, of course, we see the pattern of what's going on. Jeremiah has prayed a response, a lament at the response, a second prayer, a second response. Uh, You know there's going to be another God-given lament. It's a terrible symmetry in these uh, verses. We've circled around twice from plea to response, no judgment is coming, to lament over the people. And, and it is lament, isn't it, verses 5 to 9, that there is real sadness here. Uh, not of the people facing judgment, uh, but specifically of the Lord, who must now move upon his own people in judgment. At verse 5, who will have pity on you, Jerusalem, who will mourn for you, Uh, who will stop to ask you how you are. And and verse 6, the Lord adopts the language of weariness to help us understand. 
You've rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding, so I will reach out and destroy you. I'm tired of holding back. As he sweeps in judgment on the people, the Lord himself is mindful that, well, verse 7, these are my people on whom I will bring bereavement and destruction because they've not changed their ways. Jeremiah's prayers, let let us see the heart of the man at prayer, his love for the people, even though they are awful to him, and his love for the Lord God. I guess it's in the Lord's responses and the laments that we see the heart of God opened up. And and of course he condescends to us, that is, he, he describes using language we can relate to and we can understand so that we might know him better. That the Lord himself mourns for the judgment he himself will bring. There's, there's a funny thing going on here, isn't there? That we can, we can delight, I think, that God sings a lament over the ancient church. We can take comfort in all this sorrow because it means that our God is not a God who delights in judgment. He's not singing out in wondrous praise that he's going to crush the wicked from amongst his people. Uh, Ezekiel uh, prophesies similar things, doesn't he? Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? No, rather I am, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? That's the heart of the Lord. He mourns the judgment that must come. What Ezekiel states as a dry proposition about God's character, Jeremiah lets us see it kind of played out in this drama. We ought to just, uh, there's an obvious elephant in the room, that is a critic would really quickly dismiss these words. It would be preposterous, they would say, for, for you to argue the same person, the same God, who says, Uh, who will have pity on you, Jerusalem, verse 5, can also say, I will bring bereavement and destruction on my people, verse 7. I will bring down on them anguish and terror, verse 8. They would say that's a nonsense. Not the same person, certainly not the same God, could say such a thing. But it's not a very strong argument, even... A parent of small children knows that dreadful experience of disciplining a child you deeply love needs to be done. There's no pleasure to be taken in it. It's good for the child to be disciplined. And yet often you feel racked with a kind of sorrow that such discipline is needed and that you have to do it, that you have to inflict through whatever means. No, he's not talking about the type of discipline, smacking or otherwise, it's being recorded and put on the internet. We don't need to get into any trouble for anyone, do we? But no parent enjoys that, even if it's putting a child on a timeout step. That's not fun. And yet, as a parent, we can both be sorrowful for it and deeply love the child and do it anyway. These laments speak of a God whose love for his people is deeper and richer than anything we might imagine. Here is... The Lord God showing his love and his commitment to justice, both. Uh, Who will mourn for you, he asks. And the answer we're given is, just the Lord God himself. And he will mourn deeply, eyes filled with tears. 
I said we'd see at the beginning, just as we come to the close now, the hearts of Jeremiah and the Lord as we listen to their to and fro in prayer. I hope you've seen that we do. More of it next week, actually, even more personal, if that's possible. But we're reminded, too, that what we glimpse here in part, if we walk forward through the scriptures, it, it will always take us to the foot of the cross of Christ, because it's there that all these complicated, seemingly conflicting emotions and ways and character come together. It's there at the cross that we see the fullness of the love of God for the people he has made. And there we see the fullness of his commitment to justice and his desire to punish sin. How how can he both punish sin and spare his people? How can he be both a God of love for his people and, and absolute justice? And you know the answer already, don't you? But don't take it for granted. Don't miss the wonder. Because the answer is by sending his son. It's going himself in that sense, in the person of his son stepping into the place of his people, experiencing the judgment they deserve as their substitute that they might go free. Jeremiah 14 and 15, all kinds of lessons we can learn about honesty in prayer. It reminds us of the horror of the judgment of God. It shows us of the need for a, a tenderness for us, for God's people, Certainly we see the tenderness of the Lord himself for his people. Perhaps most of all, though, most importantly, in a strange and unexpected way, Jeremiah leads us by the hand to Calvary. Because it's only there that all of this comes together and is resolved and makes sense. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Shall I pray? Our gracious God, we bow before you this evening as the God who is holy and hates injustice and sin. And the God of love who loves his people with an undying love. The God who would send even his own son to die the death his people deserve that they might go free. What amazing love. Let us revel and delight in that love, even as we mourn the coming judgment, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.